later. Okay, welcome back to episode two. I am joined by my co-hosts, Crystal Majors and Sarah Benitez. Please say hi to the people. Hello, people. Hi. Thanks for joining. So, welcome back to our podcast where we are discussing school choice policy and their impact or the impact on resegregating schools. And this episode will focus primarily on enrollment and attendance policy issues that are perpetuating um, school uh, charter school resegregation efforts. Before we dive into some of the data and some of the research that exists, we are going to establish a bit of a legal framework and historical context. And to do that, we will start in 1896, where we have Plessy v. Ferguson, where the Supreme Court ruled that racially segregated public facilities were legal so long as the facilities for blacks and whites were also equal, which established this you know, well-known phrase, separate but equal, which should sound familiar. Sure does. And then you kind of fast forward several decades um, to the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education, where separate but equal educational facilities for my, racial minorities is in the Supreme Court ruled it's inherently unequal and that it violated the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment. So in their verdict, the Supreme Court did not specify on how exactly schools should be integrated, but they did ask for further arguments. And in the following year in May, the Supreme Court issued a second opinion in the case, which we know as Brown v. Brown v. Board of Education II, which remanded future desegregation efforts to lower federal courts and district courts um, and directed district courts and school boards to proceed de- with desegregation with a quote, with all deliberate speed. And, and that speed means slow. Yeah. When they said deliberate speed, they really, it was well intentioned, but the court's action really opened the door to local judicial and political evasion of these desegregation efforts. And one of the most commonly referred to examples of that was the Little Rock Nine in Arkansas, where the governor was calling in the National Guard to make that impossible. And the president ended up calling in federal troops to stop the governor. So it's quite the scandal, quite the debacle in Arkansas. And then we can kind of fast forward through the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1968 Fair Housing Act. All all three of those cases kind of bolstered that were built on the Brown v. Board of Education ruling. And then in 1974, there's a Milliken v. Bradley case where the Supreme Court ruled that school districts did not have to, did not, did not have to integrate among each other if the districts were, and I quote, were not drawn with racist intent, end quote. Which and, is being the racist intent at this point, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who is deciding what is racist and what is not in the mid-70s? Yeah. And this left, I mean, enough room for districts to make sure their classrooms were not separated by race. But the Supreme Court then applied limits to that as well, which in 2007, we see PICS v. Seattle uh, Seattle School District 1. PICS stands for Parents Involved in Community Schools. And in that decision, the Supreme Court ruled that school boards cannot use the race of an individual to decide whether they go to school, um, where they go to school. So in the majority opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote that schools could instead use demographic data, not the race of a student, to decide where to build new schools or to how to draw attendance zones. And that is a really key point because it leads into the next part of the episode, which is about segregated schools um, and segregated neighborhoods. Do neighborhoods that are already segregated for whatever reason, which we'll get to, 
are those neighborhoods causing segregated schools? So if you attended an American public school, chances are that you went to that school because your family lived in that school's attendance zone. I know for me, that is true. And you probably really did not think twice about it. And we tend to assume that these are neutrally drawn, well-established borders, these attendance zones. But if you take a step back and we look at the demographics of who lives in each attendance zone, we are faced with a very, very different story. Yeah, Stephen, I think part of that is like the critical race theory lens that we're looking at this um, policy analysis through. Um, If we look at what is normal and, you know, we grew up, we just, like you said, went to the schools that we went to because we thought that was normalized and that was, you know, just what we were supposed to do. But because of, you know, these, these laws that allow for the segregation for boundary lines, like, it's just crazy that that was our normal, but it's not like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, once we look at the school attendance zones in this way with the critical race theory lens, and we're going to like really be critical of policy, uh, it becomes clear why the long the lines are drawn the way they are. Groups with political clout, mainly wealthier, wider communities, have pushed policies that help white families live in heavily white areas and attend heavily white schools. And we can really look at this after city after city, state after state, and there are tons of examples. And that really sounds a lot like uh, gerrymandering, which is known as a tool to manipulate boundaries for voting districts. Um, But school districts have long used the same tool to manipulate these school boundaries, and we continue to see it um, even in in, in today's uh, school districts. Um, Much like congressional district school zones are highly gerrymandered, the gerrymandering of the school zones served to worsen the already severe racial segregation in K-12 schools. And often what we've noticed is that these attendance zones are gerrymandered to put white students in classrooms that are even wider than the communities that they live in. And the result of that is that schools today are resegregating. In fact, according to the Civil Rights uh, Project, schools in the South are as segregated now as they were about 65 years ago. Not long after that landmark for Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. So that's... And I think even alarming downtown Indianapolis and look at some of the charter schools, some of Indianapolis public schools, we can see that gerrymandering is still very much a thing, like not just with, you know, race, but with, um, you know, how much income a person has and using those tools, you know, more than just race. But yeah, I think there's a, a much larger conversation that we could have about systemic and institutionalized racist, I mean, specifically housing practice, if we're talking about attendance zones and how we have neighborhoods being segregated. Um, But for the purpose of the podcast, we may have to digress. (laughs) Um, But that leads into maybe the third kind of part of this episode is that is school choice causing or is it exacerbating segregation in schools? The question is, is school choice policy causing resegregation or is school choice policy exacerbating an existing underlying issue. And so to start off that conversation, in 2017, the Associated Press conducted an analysis of charter school enrollment nationwide, and they found that the schools were among the most racially segregated in the nation. And you know, for this report, they were, I mean, the Associated Press was attacked by 
you know, billionaires, millionaires, hedge fund guys and gals that are proponents of school choice policy. And but really what the data says is that while only 4% of traditional public schools have student bodies that are 99% minority, 17% of charter schools are 99% minority. So what we're doing is we're comparing a 4% to a 17%. Public schools, 4%, charter schools, 17% of them have a population student body that is 99 or more percent minority. Mm-hmm. And if we look a little further, about 6,700 of those charter schools in the country, out of those 6,700, more than about 1,000 had minority enrollment of at least 99%. So when I say at least, that means it was sometimes more than 99%. And this is data that was reflected of 2014-2015 school year. Yeah, and I mean, Stephen, based on that data, so the implication is that, you know, public schools are housing and educating more white students, whereas the charter schools are housing and educating more minority students. And I feel like, you know, that kind of sounds familiar, Plessy versus Ferguson again, is, you know, separate but equal. Yeah, we're definitely, yeah. we're echoing that, that definite, like, separate but equal, because we see it. Yeah, and actually in a 2011 analysis by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of California, they found that charter schools are more racially isolated than traditional public schools in virtually every state and large metropolitan areas. Yeah, and I think that's really important to say because there's this common misconception that as we get closer to larger cities and more metropolitan areas and more urban areas, that the idea is that they are not as segregated and these researchers at these really reputable you know universities found that is just not true um, so as charter schools exacerbate or make worse resegregation trends their advocates often resort to the justification um, that we kind of echo those during the separate but equal area that integration is not necessarily to meet the academic needs of children so if a really tough question is that if parents choose to send their child or their student um, to a charter school that is deeply segregated, but it's academically successful, who are we to question that decision? And I'll, I yield my time to the floor. Well, first, I guess I'll go first. Um, do they actually have a choice is my first question. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we are talking about school choice policies and you know, there are some charter schools that are really highlighted for their academic success. But part of that is, are they even, you know, can they fill out the forms to go there? Are they within those boundary lines? Um, And also though, what academic data, you know, do we have from long-term? Because charter schools are kind of, you know, a newer thing. And so I feel like we don't have much data about the success of charter schools and, you know, even the after effects. So do they go off to college, things like that. So I don't know, those are just some things that, more questions to your questions really, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarah, what do you think? I think it's also, you know, um, worth noting that, you know, when we're specifically saying um, if parents choose and, and we use that term, uh, I think inappropriately because oftentimes, you know, uh, that choice um, or that illusion of a choice is automatically taken from some of these families um, because some of them, sure, while all of them are, you know, concerned about the academic success, I mean, there are so many components to, you know, um, just 
the the whole child and like holistically not just the academic part of it but you know um i mean i'm a teacher but i i guess i can say that that more than just academically i feel like we do more than just teach them things right we also um teach them those social skills those things that they need to take on when they you know further they go further into like their lives and and the everyday people that they will in their own lives you know be be working with and so i feel like um sometimes with the priorities that certain families have that choice is automatically eliminated from them because while academics is a huge you know component of their decision so is the proximity of where they're sending their students or so is the transportation or so is you know like crystal said um those forms and everything else yeah and if we're really going to consider academic success of charter schools I'm not, I'm not going to lie and say that there are charter schools, they all are unsuccessful. There are lots that are successful and they have some data to support that, that claim. Um, but the data at best for charter schools really is very young and it's all over the board. So I think charter schools have a way to go for that. I mean, they're gonna use that as a reasoning. Um, but charter schools have been championed by the current United States Education Secretary, uh, Betsy DeVos. And as the sector, as this sector continues to grow, it will really have to contend with the question of whether separate can really be equal. And for each incoming and outgoing political administration, um, those changes are there's changes that are always made. And it's a bipartisan issue. It's not a partisan issue. Um, so that kind of brings us to the last part of this episode. We're going to talk, maybe discuss some implications or recommendations. Um, but it's really important to say that school segregation is a complex problem rooted in history and structural racism, school assignment policies, as well as parental behavior, honestly. Um, but recent research from the National Bureau of Economic Research in 2017 showed that school boards with members who are registered Democrats tend to draw lines that reduce segregation. And what that means is that you can play an active part, like the citizens, the voters, can play an active part at a local level in deciding which children should be allowed to, I don't know, run a bake sale together or learn multiplication mm -hmm. tables together or shovel through books together in their library. Voters can directly impact at the local level a desegregation effort. And so I, I would leave you with that when it comes to implications. And I think throughout the next episodes, we're gonna talk about more implications. But for this episode, really consider yourself the voter the power you have at a local level. So with that, I'll bring this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. We will see you in our next episode. See you guys then.